Let tyrants fear. I have always so behaved myself that, under God, I have placed my chiefest strength and safeguard in the loyal hearts and goodwill of my subjects. I know I have but the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and of a king of England too. Not doubting by your obedience to my general, by your concord in the camp, and by your valour in the field, we shall shortly have a famous victory over the enemies of God, and of my kingdom, and of my people. Or so said Queen Elizabeth I on the 9th of August 1588 at Tilbury. It's a famous story there on the banks of the Thames estuary. Queen Elizabeth inspected her fleet of ships which were about to go to meet the formidable Spanish Armada. And she gave this rousing speech in which she asserted not just the strength of the English navy, but of her strength as a queen. The history books suggest that the wind was the decisive factor in the ensuing battle. But as the English defeated the Spanish invasion force at sea, Elizabeth's reputation as a fearsome leader was bolstered. And who knows, perhaps her speech boosted morale and played a part in the victory. Everything from the films to the fantasy novels has a stirring pep talk just before a decisive battle. The warrior leader shouts out to the mass troops, sword in the air. And the themes are the same both in history and in historical fiction. They're themes of bravery and of courage, of strength and of might, of determination and of absolute conviction that victory will be theirs on that battlefield on that day. Because in that moment, on the eve of battle, even a soldier might fear death. In those moments, what they need to hear more than anything else is reassurance in the face of doubt, strength in the face of weakness, and ultimately victory in the face of defeat. If you're returning after last week's lunchtime service, you'll know that we're in a little series themed around spiritual warfare, looking at the story of Gideon from the book of Judges. Last week, we thought about smashing idols as Gideon went out at night to cut down the Baal and the Asherah pole and to build an altar to the Lord and to worship him in their place. We considered what it might look like for us to identify and to overthrow the idols that we find ourselves worshipping in our own lives. This week it's another nighttime adventure for Gideon, but an even more threatening one. We're seeing how Gideon was drawn into God's plan to defeat his enemies, and how he was prepared for it. There's a lot to take in here. We can only scratch the surface. But let's start with the first of three lessons to draw from this middle section of Gideon's story. It is this. The Lord gives us reassurance in the face of doubt. We saw last week in chapter 6 and verse 12 that the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon saying, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. 
And we saw last week why that was ironic at best and insulting at worst. Gideon was indeed a weak man from a weak clan. And when the angel of the Lord found him, he was hiding in a wine press, threshing his wheat in secret for fear that the Midianite raiders who were coming across the border would help themselves to his harvest. His call was a spiritual one to begin among his own people. He was to expose and then to depose the false gods that were being worshipped among the Lord's people. But the spiritual condition of the people had geopolitical consequences. So chapter 6 and verse 1 tells us this, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. This is the Lord doing something that the Lord often does in the Bible. He hands his people over to the consequences of their actions. And in this case, the consequence of worshipping Midianite gods is to be subject to Midianite power. Now, we must be careful as we think in New Testament terms here. The Lord's people are not located in one nation state nowadays. They are scattered abroad in the worldwide kingdom of Christ. And so it would be quite wrong of us to distinguish the Lord's people and the Lord's enemies on a 21st century political map. But the principle from Gideon's day applies and is affirmed in the New Testament. The principle is that by swapping the worship of God for idols, the Lord hands us over to be governed by those false gods, those idols. Consider these words from Romans chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul writes, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Which tells us two things. Firstly, that we're going to face a spiritual battle if we're going to worship the living God rightly. And secondly, that we're going to need a lot of help on the battlefield. If you've seriously reckoned with the reality of sin in your life, you'll know that it is hard work and often discouraging. Those persistent temptations which we keep finding ourselves falling into, those besetting sins which we want to shake off but which we seem to cling to. Broken and weak and feeble, does the Lord really expect anything much from us? Are we even sure he's committed to working in us and through us? Well, Glutton said Judges 6, verses 33 to 40. Probably familiar verses if you've spent time in church or wider Christian culture. 
The context is the gathering together of two opposing armies. Uh, Verse 33, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples have gathered in the valley of Jezreel. Verses 34 and 35, Gideon summons his clan, the Abiezrites, and also others from the tribe of Manasseh, and other tribes, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. Here are alliances, stronger than single tribes, ready to face off against one another. And I wonder, who would you back for the win? On the one hand, the Midianites and their friends seem to have it all under control. Uh, So chapter 7 and verse 12 says, uh, The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. And that might seem like a formidable enemy. But have you reckoned with Gideon? Don't overlook verse 34 of chapter 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. Now that is a game changer. Recognizably weak, yes, but never count against God's people when filled with the Spirit of God when it comes to a spiritual battle. You know, when you trust in the Lord for your salvation, when you put your faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus on your behalf, you are filled with the Holy Spirit and blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And that means a lot of things, but one thing it means for certain is that a Christian never goes into a spiritual battle on their own. With the enemy against us and the enemies of sin all around us, it is reassuring to know that the Spirit of God is in us. The Apostle Peter uh, writes this, a great verse to take into each day with all the conflicts that we're presented with. 2 Peter 1 and verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. It is reassuring to know that the Lord works in us and through us by his Spirit whatever we're facing. But of course, Gideon famously wants a little more. He wants another sign. He says to God, if he lays his fleece out overnight and the dew falls on the fleece and not on the ground around it, he will know that the Lord will save Israel under his leadership. And it is so. So the next night, he poses the opposite challenge to God. This is the control trial, if you like. This second night, he lays down his fleece again and says to God, if the fleece is dry, but the ground is wet, then he will trust. And if you know the story, I imagine you'll be in one of two camps. Maybe you're in the pro-Gideon camp, where you see this as a model of discernment. In some Christian circles, it's a common cliche to lay down your fleece when facing a difficult decision. I'll ask for a sign, and if I get one, I'll ask for a second one too. After all, if God didn't want Gideon to ask these kinds of questions, he wouldn't have given the signs that he was asked for. 
Or alternatively, you may be in the anti-Gideon camp. If that's you, you'll see this as an example of putting the Lord to the test, which not only does the law prohibit, but Jesus himself rebukes the devil for tempting him to do. By this point in chapter 6, Gideon has heard the word of the Lord through a prophet, spoken with the angel of the Lord face to face, and had the spirit of the Lord come upon him. It's hard to see how a wet woolen garment would be of any additional use to him at this stage. But if I can perhaps hold those two points of view in tension, I wonder if we might get to the heart of the message of this little section. It is that the Lord gives us reassurance in the face of doubt. Gideon keeps needing more words and more signs. He actually has another one later in chapter 7. It's the eve of battle, and instead of rousing his troops with a Braveheart-style speech, he's sneaking around at night, again out of fear. This time it's the Lord's initiative. Uh, The Lord says to him in 7 and verse 10, If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. He hears a man recounting his dream. A loaf of bread has rolled through the Midianite camp and knocked down the tents like skittles. His interpretation is that Gideon's army will have the victory. And Gideon hears this, he is reassured, and he launches his attack. Again, it is simultaneously supernatural and mundane. It's given Gideon additional assurances on top of the many more robust ones he has already heard from the Lord's direct speech. Now, he shouldn't necessarily have needed such assurances. God had spoken But of course, it isn't really about Gideon. This is about the Lord and what kind of God he is. This story, the story of Judges, the story of the Bible as a whole, these are stories of the patience of God. When we're not sure if he will act as he's promised, the Lord gives reassurance in the face of doubt. Now, I'm conscious as ever, our time is tearing away from us. Uh, More briefly, Here, though, we ought to mention two other lessons that come out from chapter 7. The next comes from that passage that Juby read for us in verses 1 to 8. The Lord gives us strength in the face of weakness. But how's this for a military strategy? Blow your trumpet as a call to arms, gather your forces ready for the attack, and then dismiss the vast majority of them as surplus to requirements. Among all the rousing eve of war speeches from history and from fiction, I know none like this. Verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. This is the extraordinary and yet compelling wisdom of God at work in spiritual warfare. Not a force of might or power for him, no, quite the opposite. When the Lord leads us into battle, It is never from a position of our strength. That's his explanation later in verse 2. You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands. 
or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. From a concern about doubt a moment ago, here comes a concern about pride. If we're too strong, if we are too able, we will come to trust ourselves and our power, even as we go in the name of the Lord. But he wants us to be dependent on him for his strength alone. The scene here is quite comic as it unfolds. First, Gideon asks the 32,000 men if any of them are afraid of the battle ahead and most leave with just 10,000 remaining. And then as they stop for a drink, those who lap from cupped hands are separated off from those who get down on their knees to drink straight from the water. Gideon sends away the 9,700 who knelt and took the 300 who lapped towards the battlefield with him. Now, I don't want to read too much into the method of whittling down the army. I don't think that's the point. What matters, I think, is that the Lord is the only one who is orchestrating the victory here. As far as he's concerned, it is an essential feature of this army that it not only looks weak, but that it is weak. 300 men against the thick-as-locusts army against the more camels than sand on the seashore army of verse 12. It's a very puzzling military strategy indeed, until you think about the God who devised it. The God of the Bible is the God of power. He is the first and the last and the living one, as he says of himself in Revelation chapter 1. Of course he could come in power, and he does. The victory is his But the God of the Bible achieves victory through weakness. Those he chooses to use for his purposes are those who are humble and humbled. The Lord is most clearly at work through those in whom the Lord alone can be seen to be strong. This is a truth fundamental to the Christian faith. It is the way of Jesus on the cross humbling himself, denying himself, giving himself up, submitting himself to death, even death on a cross. And it is the way of Jesus' servants. Those who are to follow him are to take up their crosses daily to do so. It'll feel like death to ourselves and to our desires. This spiritual battle will be a battle. We'll take some setbacks and some wounds along the way. But in our weakness, so does he show himself to be strong. This is a truth fundamental to the Christian faith. And yet terribly awfully, it's a truth that is often forgotten in practice, even if it is taught from the pulpit. I'm conscious of the the royal crest in the background of the gallery just behind me. The establishment of the church brings dangers Reputations of churches or ministries or ministers are all too often built up in power out of fear rather than laid down and exercised in weakness out of faith. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 5. And as the historian Tom Holland comments on that verse, This is the San Andreas fault on which the power structures of the Christian world have been built. Christ's kingdom, which he establishes through the defeat of the great enemies of sin and death and hell, Christ's kingdom is one of meekness and weakness. 
not of personal power. There is a fault line between the two, and earthquakes happen when the culture of the church rubs up against the way of Christ's kingdom. Well, the Lord reassures us in the face of doubt. The Lord gives us strength in the face of weakness. Finally, a concluding line or two on this. The Lord gives us victory in the face of defeat. I hope it won't come as a spoiler to you to learn that the Midianites are routed. Gideon and his army wins the day. But again, the tactics are odd. With just 300 men, Gideon couldn't possibly win in a pitched battle. The Israelites were hopelessly outnumbered. So instead, they play things to their advantage. They go quietly, again, at night. They have torches hidden in jars and trumpets with them. They time their arrival for the changing of the watch in the middle of the night. And the tactic seems to be this. While a third of the Midianites would have been taking up their posts and a third would have been resting, the final third would have been coming off duty and passing through the camp. As Gideon and his men blow their trumpets in the darkness, the Midianites would know that they were under attack. And by smashing their jars and exposing their torches, suddenly it would have looked to all the Midianites as if they were surrounded by a much bigger force than they were. Anyone coming out of their tents would see Midianite men equipped for battle coming off duty in the midst of the camp. And they may well have mistaken them for Israelites. In the chaos, the Midianites attacked one another while Gideon's men stood watching. Uh, There is another famous story in the ancient world of 300 soldiers going into battle against a vast foreign army. Leonidas led 300 men of Sparta at the Battle of Thermopylae. A few years ago, the story was told in a film called 300. His tiny band of Spartans didn't expect to last the night. Holding off the might of the Persian Empire, he said, Have a good breakfast, men, for tonight we dine in Hades. The 300 Spartans at Thermopylae are remembered as heroes because they fought bravely in the knowledge of certain death. The 300 Israelites at the Valley of Moreh are remembered because they didn't fight in the knowledge of certain victory. They blew trumpets, they broke jars, they held torches, they shouted, and all the Midianites ran out crying as they fled. The Israelites had shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, but when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The sword of the mighty warrior Gideon still hasn't seen a drop of blood in this story, and yet he'd won a significant military victory against a powerful enemy who'd done a great deal of harm. Moses had said to the people before the Exodus, Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And it was true of Gideon in this battle. Outnumbered, outresourced, it should have been a walkover. But he went into battle with the best resources he could possibly wish for. With the Lord himself working in him and through him to rout the enemy. And when all is said and done, The spiritual warfare we face today 
is best met with those same tactics. To be reassured by God that he will do what he has promised to do, that is to save his people by his own hand. To be strengthened by God in the midst of our weakness, that is to recognize our helplessness and our dependence on him. And to receive victory from God in the place of defeat, that is to entrust the battle to him through the work of his son and the power of his spirit. You have too many men, the Lord says. Well, may we trust the one man to do battle on our behalf. If we were meeting in person, we'd be singing at this point. And if we were to be singing, it would be these words from Martin Luther that I would choose for us. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts his name from age to age the same, and he will fit the battle.